This podcast is part of the Serpent series. If you've made it here from that playlist, welcome. If you haven't, and this is your first stop, check out the playlist down there. Either way, I think you're going to enjoy what we and the other creators here have to offer. By the way, stick around to the end for some exciting news on Patreon. The name of Leviathan has held mystery for thousands of years. Appearing multiple times in the collection of writings known in Judaism as the Tanakh and as the Old Testament to Christians, the Leviathan is a figure as mysterious as it is powerful. Other writings which feature the creature explain that far beyond the dramatic sea monster many envision, the Leviathan presents a deep and fulfilling vision of humanity along with its behemoth counterpart, the wild bull known in Judaism as Shor Habor. To understand the Leviathan, the forces which it represents, and their meaning in our lives, likely the best place to start is the Book of Job, one of the masterpieces of Jewish wisdom literature. The Book of Job is a beautiful and profound study the relationship between humanity and divinity, and the mysteries of sin and suffering. It is this book that provides the most detailed description of the Leviathan, as well as the best clues to understanding what the creature represents. Finally, later literature about the Leviathan will be seen provide a promise to all humanity, both heavenly and earthly-minded. My name is Sean. Welcome to Mythos and Logos. The Leviathan makes its most well-known appearance in the Book of Job, so an understanding of that story is crucial understanding the beast. The book of Job is one of the most unique books in the Bible. It begins with a dialogue between God and a figure known as the accuser, in Hebrew, Hasatan, or more commonly known in English as Satan. God presents Satan, who has been patrolling the earth, with the example of Job a righteous man, blameless and upright. The accuser, Satan, living up to his name, accuses God of only having earned Job's dedication by blessing him. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand, and strike down everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Met with this challenge, God surprisingly answers by granting Satan power over Job's life only without being able to directly harm him. 
Satan jumps at the opportunity. Soon, Job receives a series of tragic news. His land is pillaged by raiders. His servants are struck down by a fire from the heavens, and his daughters and sons are killed in a building collapse. Yet with all of this, Satan does not yet achieve his goal, as Job prays. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? The story then returns to the heavenly setting where Satan accuses God once again, claiming that Job isn't supported by faith, only by self-preservation. As long as he is spared from the harm befalling those around him, Satan argues that Job will think he's somehow blessed. So the wager is doubled down, with the new limit that Satan can harm Job in any way, only short of killing him. Immediately, Satan gets to work, and he causes Job to develop painful sores all the way from the soles of his feet, growing to the crown of his head, crippling him with pain. And this is Job's state when three friends arrive to console him. They sit with him in silence. Until after a week, Job finally speaks, cursing the day he was born. Job wishes for death, cursing a life that was lived only to lose everything in suffering. Job wishes that so many may curse the day of his birth that the sound would even wake the leviathan lurking in the depths of the ocean. This wish, we will soon see, turns out to be prophetic. Job's friends in turn tell him that he must be a sinner, that such extreme suffering must be a punishment from God. Because God is just, they argue, Job must somehow be deserving of this punishment. And so they push Job to repent for his sins so that his suffering might end. Yet Job responds by denying the idea of divine justice. He has never had a trial, never had the opportunity to plead his case to God, never had an advocate who could speak on his behalf. And it's only after the three men fail to reach Job that a fourth, far younger guest, Elihu, makes his appearance. Elihu chastises each of the three men, arguing that Job is righteous and not sinful, but then turns his attention to Job himself. Job's problem, Elihu says, is not that he's been sinful. Rather, Job is overestimating his importance in the matter, being so vain as to think that he could possibly be good enough to avoid suffering. 
Elihu hands Job a harsh reality check. There are forces in this world far greater than him, and that no one man's sin or righteousness can control the world. Yet you ask God, what profit is it to me? What do I gain by not sinning? Look up at the heavens and see. Gaze at the clouds so high above you. If you sin, how does it affect him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? What does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness only affects humans like yourself. And your righteousness, only other people. Just as Elihu finishes his speech, the point is made dramatically clear. A sudden storm arrives, and Job is brought into a whirlwind in which he hears the voice of God speak to him. God takes Job on a truly cosmic vision, showing him the universe and his place in it. Surveying the earth, God asks Job where he was when he laid its foundations, whether he has seen the origins of the waters and the storehouses of snow. Then God takes Job into the stars, asking where he was when he laid them in place. If it is Job who shaped the constellations and laid out the paths of the stars across the sky, and if he can bind the chains of the Pleiades or loosen Orion's belt. Then, in an instant, God takes Job from the heights of the stars to the depths of the ocean. To make one last show of how much the world is outside Job's understanding, God brings him face to face with his most fearsome creation, the Leviathan. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook? or tie down its tongue with a rope? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Nothing on earth is its equal. A creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. God takes Job up close with the Leviathan, showing Job its double layers of scales as large and firm as shields and its underbelly as hard as stone. Job sees the Leviathan's eyes piercing through the waters like beams of light. Its breath, lit with sparks, burns under the sea, and flames dart from its mouth. The Leviathan is entirely unlike anything Job has ever seen. And he comes to understand that there are far greater forces than himself controlling the universe. In the end, 
God restores everything to Job, double what was taken from him. Interestingly, God never explains the terms of his wager with Satan to Job. Instead, it is simply the knowledge that there are mysteries beyond his understanding that sets Job at peace, knowing that his suffering is somehow part of something greater. Seeing how much of the cosmos is beyond his control, Job no longer feels misery in his suffering, but rather a reverent sense of mystery. However, in a likely surprise to those only familiar with the Leviathan in the book of Job, another story reveals the symbolic mysteries of the creature. Though it is easy to get caught up in the awesome imagery of the Leviathan, the creature holds a purpose greater than simply inspiring fear. The Talmud, a key Jewish text, tells that the Leviathan is God's pet with which he plays at the end of each day after sustaining the world. Yet an even deeper understanding comes from the Midrash Rabbah, a collection the greatest historical sermons and writings of rabbis. One section of the Midrash tells of the time to come, the time of the Messiah, an age marked by prosperity, health, and an end to suffering. Tradition tells that in this age there will be a great feast attended by the righteous, with two items in the main course the meat of a great ox, known in Hebrew as Shor Habor, and the flesh of the Leviathan. It is said that before the feast, the crowd will be gathered in a giant stadium to witness a battle between the two beasts, in which the Leviathan will slaughter the ox with its fin, and the ox will gore the Leviathan with its horn. This may seem a bit inappropriately violent for paradise, but the Midrash explains this encounter as presenting a spiritual truth. The Leviathan and Shor Habor each represent a different type of spirituality. Leviathan, awe-inspiring and hidden beneath the waves, represents a deep, hidden service, mysterious to the world above. The ox, Shor Habor, however, makes itself visible on earth, interacting with humans, representing an active service engaged with others. The meaning of the battle between the two reveals itself through a clever double meaning of one particular word, the Hebrew word for slaughter, which also means elevate. As the beasts then are not only killing, but are elevating each other, they can be understood to show how two distinct types of spirituality and life depend on each other. The deep and spiritual connection of the Leviathan tradition 
like mystics and scholars, uncovers ways to deepen one's understanding. But without the engaged and active spirituality of the Shor Habor, those insights would never be put into action. As the job of mystics is to discover truth, it is the role of the rest to make the world of the spirit an earthly reality. Both creatures are superior to each other in one way, and yet they depend on each other, which is why the crowd of the righteous watches them elevate each other, then feast together on the fruits. In the book of Job, the Leviathan appears at first glance to be a source of intimidation. But with the greater context provided by tradition, one can draw closer to Job's understanding of the world. While it is often too easy to be taken by fear of that which lies beyond our control, God's revelation to Job shows him the value letting go of the illusion that one can control everything. Job learns that his suffering is not his fault and is not a punishment. This is because Job is elevated by just a small hint of the greatest mystery in which his life is one part, informing him with meaning even in suffering. The story of Leviathan and the great ox Shor Habor serves then as a promise to both the introverted and the service-oriented among us. That promise is of a better life, as long as each acts with the other. For those who focus their efforts on human connections, it's a promise of guidance and understanding of the world through others. Likewise, for the contemplative, whether a mystic, philosopher, or simply bookish, it is a promise that ideas will be heard, trusted, and will be put into action. The connection between Leviathan and Shor Habor, then, mirrors the relationship between a teacher and a student who must live the lesson, or an artist and the one who is moved by the work which is life-changing. With this mutual elevation through cooperation, those who are like Job will be given guidance and comfort, while those who are like Elihu will be able to use their understanding to help others. Armed with the support of our counterparts, not only can we gain a glimpse of a better world, but take the action to make it a reality. And thank you for joining in the study of the Leviathan and Shor Habor in the book of Job, the Talmud, and the Midrash Rabbah. Um, my deepest thanks go to Rabbi Edelman at Chabad, Amherst, Massachusetts, who was a wonderful, amazing help and whose insights I cannot possibly credit enough in the making of this project. 
I would also like to extend my thanks to Zevi at the Seekers of Unity channel and to all of the other creators who helped in this, in this great project, the Serpent series. If you have found your way here through it, I welcome you. I thoroughly invite you to subscribe. You've made it this far, but you clearly liked it. So to subscribe, like, see what else this community we're growing has to offer. If this is your first stop, then there is a link to the playlist down in the description and in the comments as well. There's a lot of really great, talented, gifted creators all in the mythology space here on YouTube and in podcasts that are all coming together to share our various insights on this one greater theme. I'm also very happy to announce a seminar happening on Patreon in collaboration with the Ancient World podcast. We've worked together quite a bit, and this seminar on the left and right brain in Ian McGilchrist's book, Master and His Emissary, is going to be fantastic. If you're a patron at the $5 tier, you're getting an invite already. If you're not, well, I don't know what you're waiting for, because wonderful events like this and much more are happening. You also get blog posts and a great community where you can meet with myself and some like-minded individuals. All in all, I'm so happy to see that you made it this far, and I hope to see you around next time. Bye.